Welcome to the Sports Lodge, where sports, entertainment, and pop culture merge within the mind of your host, Roger Lodge. Welcome into the Sports Lodge podcast. My name is Roger Lodge, and today's show, all about rivalries. The fiercest, which is the biggest moneymaker. What is the main ingredient for a fierce rivalry? And let's face it, folks, you can't beat a great rivalry in sports, whether it's Ravens-Steelers, Yankees-Red Sox, Duke, North Carolina, Lakers, Celtics. Oh my goodness, during the 80s, Lakers, Celtics at the old fabulous forum out here in Los Angeles. Not only did the Lakers and Celtics not like each other, they hated each other, which I think is a big part of any rivalry. Speaking of hatred, how about the macho man Randy Savage against the honky-tonk man back in the heyday of the WWF or Jimmy Connors, John McEnroe, who played each other 34 times between 1977 and 1991, with McEnroe coming out on top 20 times. You had Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicholas, Tiger Woods, Phil Mickelson, USC, UCLA. Here in today's Sports Lodge podcast, it's all about great rivalries in sports, and boy, Do I have the absolute perfect guy for my podcast on great rivalries in sports? He writes for Athlon Sports, Street and Smith Magazine, and his book, Big Games, College Football's Greatest Rivalries, is available everywhere you would expect it to be. Here is my good friend, Mr. Michael Bradley. Michael, how are you, sir? What's happening, Roger? Wait a minute. Do I hear right? Are you on the road? Who calls a podcast from the road? Look, I'm going to see an Iron Butterfly Fly tribute band. All I'm going to do is play in a Gata for two hours. Unbelievable. You are not going to see an Iron Butterfly tribute band. If there were one, I would be going to see it. Well, listen, I really appreciate the time today talking about great rivalries in all of sports. Let me, before we get to your book, Big Games, College Football's Greatest Rivalries, give me your, give me a couple of main ingredients that you need to make it a great rivalry. First of all, the teams have to be on somewhat of an equal footing. It can't be a team that wins 95% of the time against another team, then it's just one team that hates the other because they always lose. For a while, the Eagles hated the Cowboys in the 70s, but the Cowboys didn't even regard the Eagles as close to a rival because the Eagles couldn't beat them. Then in the 80s, when they started to win more, then it became more of a rivalry. Now the two teams can't stand each other. So the first thing is the teams have to be on equal footing in terms of their, um, in terms of their success against each other. Second, proximity helps. You know, if you can go and see the game at the other team's stadium or court or arena, that makes a difference. You know, Michigan-Ohio State, it's a, it's a four-hour drive down to the horrible place in Columbia, Columbus for the Michigan fans and vice versa so they can go and see each other. There also has to be some tradition. You can manufacture a short-term rivalry, but it's better when the thing goes back a long way. And when I was writing my book, I picked rivalries that could go back, in some cases, 100 years to find 
some sort of disdain that had been generated between the two sides. I think you just described, when you're talking about the main ingredients for a great rivalry, man, you just nailed the rivalry that is known as Raven-Steelers. I know a lot of Raven fans who drive to Pittsburgh and vice versa. My question is, what makes for a better rivalry? Hatred amongst the players or hatred amongst the fans? You know, I found that the players generally don't hate each other that much. It's the fans that hate each other. You know, the the players want to beat each other. And in some cases, they really don't like the other side. But, I mean, let's face it, a lot of these guys now have played with each other. In in basketball, they could have been on the same AAU team, where they may have played against each other in the same college setting. So I think it's more that the fans dislike each other than the players. I mean, when Michigan and Ohio State play – the fans cannot stand each other. In 1980, I was a, fr- a sophomore at University of Michigan. I went down to see the game at Ohio State. The night before, someone parked a car on High Street in Columbus with Michigan plates. They lit it on fire. Now, the players don't have that level of animosity toward each other. They want to win. They want to be successful. But it's not a hate unless somebody's in the pile eye-gouging. So I think it's more that the, play- the fans do. Because if the fans do, that, that's, that's the soundtrack. Give me the rivalry that you just absolutely never miss. You have to be there when these two teams play each other, whether it be in person or in front of your television with a TV dinner. Well, obviously, I mentioned Michigan-Ohio State, and as a Michigan alum, and I, that goes back to when I, from 1969 on, when I was seven years old. So I've never missed one of those games. I also, I, you know, the, the, the Xavier-Cincinnati basketball rivalry is very underrated. That one, people don't understand. The two schools are in Cincinnati. There, you might have some actual hate between the players. Uh, Pitt, West Virginia, when they play, is a big deal. Those two schools cannot stand each other. In the pros, it's, it's different because a lot of it has to do with who's doing well at a certain time. And because the cities are, in the, you know, the, the, the nature of uh, professional sports now, the players move around a whole lot, it's, it's hard to say. The Yankees-Red Sox is a great rivalry, but they play each other 17 times a year. It's kind of hard to, to deliver that level of venom every single time they play. When you talk about two teams that actually do detest one another, is Duke, North Carolina in that category? Again, it, it is to an extent, but I think they dislike each other because of the uniforms, not because the guys don't like each other. However, I think what happens is they realize what it means to their fan bases. They realize what it means over the course of history. They also realize that these are two really good basketball teams, so winning this game means a lot in terms of the ACC profile, but also the national profile. So while the players, the players want to beat each other, they may, during the course of the game, get emotions extremely high to the point where they actually do um, you know, go at each other. Still, it's hard to generate a lot of hate on an athletic field or court if, you are not, if there's not really a, a, some history where somebody has done something to somebody else. i got to tell you, Michael Bradley, I was playing in a charity so-called celebrity basketball game, and our coach was Bill Lambeer. And he was giving us our pregame speech. And while he's giving us our pregame speech, Snoop Dogg was on my team. And Snoop Dogg brought up the Lakers. And this is, you know, Bill Lambeer within the last five years. And the minute Snoop Dogg brought up the Lakers, Bill Lambeer's reply was, F the Lakers, I hate them. 
And this was 20 years after Lakers Pistons in the postseason year after year. And Bill Lambeer still has a deep hatred for the Lakers. My question is, if you go back more in time, am I going to discover more hatred than there is today? I think you are because it was less about the money then and more about the pride of winning. And I wrote a piece for the NBA Finals program this past year about the first bad boys team that won. And I had a chance to interview John Sally, Isaiah Thomas, Bill Lane Beer, and those guys legitimately didn't like the, the Bulls, couldn't stand Michael Jordan, thought he was getting preferential treatment. They couldn't stand the Lakers because they thought that the media was making the Lakers the darlings and they went at the Pistons, so they had that chip on their shoulder. And Lane Beer, to this day, is still a miserable cuss about the fact that first they had to get past the Bulls, then they had to get, first they had to get past the Celtics, then they had to get past the Lakers, and those were the two sort of glory teams that the NBA and the NBA media really love. That's that's a great point you make right there because the you know the Pistons had to first get past the Celtics to get to yep. the Lakers. But I think if I could go back and ask any of the Pistons, I think they have a greater hatred for the Celtics because for so long they couldn't get past them. I don't, I don't know. When I was talking to them, I think they looked at the Celtics and respected them. The Lakers were showtime. The Lakers were the league's favorite. Even the Celtics with with Bird and McHale and Parrish, all of them were not receiving the same level of adulation as those Laker teams were because they weren't as entertaining. They were grittier. And you are right. I mean, you know, Johnny Most, not in the field for Bryburn, underneath the light, DJ, lay down the head. That, that whole thing where they had that loss in the Eastern Conference Finals, that was a killer. Same thing with the Bulls. The Bulls had to get past the Pistons to be able to be champions. So back then, you know, you talk to players who played in all-star games in the 70s, 80s, even into the 90s, there was an East versus West where you were told by the older players, you have to. To win now with these super teams and everything, you know, what really going to have a rivalry between the Lakers and the Clippers? Are those guys really going to do it, or they do they really hate each other, or are they really going to be just sort of saying, you know, my portfolio is stronger than yours? Oh, this is really getting interesting now because, as you well know, I'm out here on the left coast. You are out there on the right coast near the Philadelphia area, if memory serves me correctly. So you're telling me that it was so easy to hate the Lakers because, A, they won all the time. Pat Riley was running around in suits more expensive than my house. And Magic Johnson was running around with that smile on his face while he slit your throat. You're telling me it was easy to hate the Lakers, not only because they were winning, uh, but because of what they represented. Sure. I mean, look, in Philadelphia, we hated the Celtics because you talk about getting your heart ripped out and stomped on from the early 60s through the early 80s. That was what the Celtics were doing to the Sixers on a regular basis. You know, now there's a stand. Havlicek stole the ball. Uh, the 1981 Eastern Conference Finals where the Sixers blew a 3-1 to lead. That was, you know, there was a team, you know, the Sixers hated the Celtics because they couldn't beat them. But the Lakers were a different entity because they represented not just a great team, as you said. They won so much. But the whole image, right? There's the Armani, Pat Riley with the Armani and the Sebastian hair gel. Magic with the smile. Kareem, let's wait, set up the offense, wait for Kareem to come down. And the media loved them. Showtime. They had their own nickname. The Sixers didn't have a nickname. The, the, the Celtics didn't have a nickname. And the Pistons were called the bad boys because 
they played tough defense and gave no quarter when someone came into the lane. So there was a sense that not only were these teams good, but there was a sense that they kind of felt that the NBA wanted them to win because it showed the NBA in a good light. The NBA wasn't happy when the Pistons were winning. That was ugly ball. When the, when the Knicks were playing that way under Pat Riley and, and Oakley and Ewing were beating the tar out of anybody who came in the lane, that was, that was gruesome, and the, the league didn't want that. That was one of the things that led to the opening up of the rules now so that the teams are scoring 130 points a night. You have to admit, back in the day of Showtime, at the risk of sounding like my father here, but back in the days of Showtime at the old fabulous forum, when Magic Johnson's coming down on a fast break and looking left and throwing right to James Worthy for an easy dunk or dumping it in the post to that sweet sky hook of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar or tossing it out for a Michael Cooper or Byron Scott three-pointer, that was sexy, that was exciting, and that was ratings for the NBA, right? Absolutely, and look, I go back and watch documentaries about the Pistons and I mean the Celtics and the Lakers rivalries. I go back and, you know, Sixers lost in 1980. The Sixers lost in 1982 before they finally broke through in 83. I couldn't stand them, but there was no doubting the esoteric beauty of the way they played. Oh, and by the way, when things got ugly and half court and you had to pound it inside, they could handle that too. Everybody thought they were just a bunch of finesse players, but they beat the Celtics a couple times in some real ugly series where it wasn't all about the fast break. And how about when Kevin McHale clotheslined Kurt yeah. Rambis going for a layup and all hell broke loose? The Springer show basically broke out at the old forum. And by the way, all Rambis did was go to the free throw line and shoot two free throws. Because that's the way it was back then. You were expected, if you, went in, if you went inside back then, you were going to meet someone who was going to try to prevent you from doing it by any way that, it, that he could possibly imagine. So you go in there, you're going to try to shoot a lap, it's going to be contested, and not just somebody jumps up. Now you got guys getting out of the way. Could you imagine what would happen if you were a piston, if John Sally got out of the way as Michael Jordan came in for a dunk? Lane Beer might have knocked him out. Forget about Jordan. So now is when, when Jordan came in, knock him to the ground, make sure he doesn't want to come back in again. And to his credit, Jordan kept going. But... That was the way it was played back then. That added to the rivalry because the fans then got even more in a froth. How dare they do that to our heroes? Let me bring this up and see whether or not you agree with me or not. I thought one of the all-time brilliant moves during the Lakers and Celtics Showtime era was CBS letting Tommy Heinsohn, a former Celtic, do the color commentary. He was such a Celtic homer, and it absolutely enraged the fans here in Southern California. Heinsohn is a great commentator, and he's still doing games for the Celtics now, but you're right. To have him doing those games was akin to you know just painting the screen green so that the fans could... <laughs> get even you know matter when the Celtics and the Lakers played I rooted for the Lakers because I hated the Celtics more as a Philadelphia guy because they beat the Sixers so much I couldn't stand the Lakers don't get me wrong but you're right having Heinsohn sitting there you know it sounded like he had a mouthful of chowder every time he was talking about something and you're going to be a Lakers fan and try to imagine that this guy's going to have any level of objectivity at point in this game it had to be infuriating and when Kurt Rambis nearly had his head taken off, Tommy Heinsohn's on the air saying, oh, that's just a good hard foul. That's the way they play. Right, and, and guess what? To an extent, he was right. But to another extent, if you're a Laker fan saying, 
wait, is that the ball or his head rolling down the court? <laughs> Michael Bradley, is there a so-called rivalry that everybody talks about, but you think it's a little overrated? It's got to be the Red Sox-Yankees now because, let's face it, it's baseball, so there's 162 games. As I said, it's hard to get revved up for 17 meetings. They haven't met in the playoffs in a while, um, and the Red Sox have now won. So part of the tension of that rivalry for a long time was the curse of the Bambino. The Red Sox couldn't get past the Yankees. Bucky effing Dent. Boone hitting the home run. That was part of it. Now that the Red Sox are winning more than the Yankees, and, and it's on every single night, it seems, you're, you're sort of saying we've got a little bit of a, of a, a uh, you know, fatigue for this. And when you talk about ingredients for rivalries, don't you have to beat your rival and ruin their season, knock them out of postseason contention? That's what the rivalry is really all about, isn't it? No doubt. And, you, you know, I go back, Alabama-Auburn, punt, Bama, punt, when Auburn ruined their hopes. The, 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 the missed field goal that Auburn returned for the touchdown that kept Alabama out of the playoff. That There has to be... There have to be moments, and I mean plural, where on both sides hopes are dashed in, 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 in such dramatic fashion. It also helps that when the Lakers and Celtics played, obviously they played two times during the regular season, but it was in the finals. When Alabama and Auburn play, it's at the end of the year. Michigan, Ohio State, same thing. These games are between teams often that are at you know 11-0 in college football, in the, in the NBA, going for the finals. So there's more at stake than just, okay, it's May, and the Yankees and Red Sox are playing with 120 more games ahead. Michael Bradley, let's play America's new favorite podcast game, Rivalry Association. I will name a great rivalry, whether it be a team rivalry or individual, and you give me a quick comment on it. Here we go. Muhammad Ali against Joe Frazier. Thriller in Manila, the, the two guys beating the, pounding the hell out of each other in one of the greatest fights of all time. Wilt Chamberlain, Bill Russell. I got 10 fingers and 11 rings. <laughs> Magic Johnson, Larry Bird. What made that rivalry so great? It was the hick from French Lick against Mr. Hollywood with the big smile. You had the, the marquee against the farm. It was a complete con- east-west, the whole thing. It had everything from the individual through the team. You really couldn't have scripted that any better. That just fell into the lap of the NBA, and they were so fortunate to get that, right? Fortunate. It saved the league. If you remember the 70s, my goodness, you had... Drug rumors. You had people saying, I don't watch any of the games till the last two minutes. Your previous two finals before that were Washington and Seattle. Nobody cared about that. And then all of a sudden, here come Magic and Bird to save the day. All right, let me move on here with another. Uh, how about Alabama-Auburn? Just plain hate those teams. Bill Curry told me a story one time that he, when he was coaching in Alabama, he went to talk to a fourth-grade class. He walked in. There was a little kid sitting in the corner. He said, what's up? And one of the kids goes, that's Bobby. He likes Auburn. We fixed him. Curry talked to the kid and said, it's okay to root for Auburn. And all the kids were mad at Bill Curry. <laughs> How about back in the day, 
Oakland Raiders, New York Jets, and I mean way back in the day when number 83, Big Ben Davidson, was nearly decapitating number 12, Joe Willie Namath. That's exactly what I was going to say. Ben Davidson trying to take Joe Willie's head off. You get the guy with the biggest contract in all of sports wearing a fur coat on the sidelines when he didn't play against a bunch of guys who probably didn't bathe more than once a month. There was a real contrast between the slick and the gritty. Hey, how much does jealousy play a part in a really good rivalry? In terms of fans, it plays a whole lot because we want what you have. If you're beating us all the time, we want what you have. In Philadelphia, Villanova and St. Joe's used to hate each other. Now Villanova's won two national championships in the last three years. They're in the Big East. They're on the national scene. And St. Joe's can't even get out of the basement of the Atlantic 10 Conference. Villanova looks at them and goes, who are you? And St. And, and Joe's goes, we want you what you want. We hate you. Let me get your biggest boxing rivalry, your all-time favorite boxing rivalry. It's got, it's got to be... Um, uh, Muhammad Ali against Joe Frazier, but I'll tell you one that's very underrated is Alexis Arguello against Aaron Pryor. Wow. Those fights were outstanding. If you ever get a chance to go back and look at them, you know, poor Arguello, who was such a tactician and a technician in the ring, was fighting the Hawk, this street fighter from the Midwest, and he just couldn't beat him because Pryor just seemed to want it even more. Okay, you're in the Philadelphia area your entire life. Favorite NHL rivalry? Um, well, look, you, you got to love uh, the, uh, you know, the, the Bruins against the Rangers because it's an original six. But I'll tell you, Flyers against the Rangers is, is, is pretty close. And now Flyers-Penguins because it's inside the state. And, and, and again, there's your jealousy. Penguins have won some Stanley Cups. The Flyers haven't since 75. Favorite NBA rivalry? That's the Sixers-Celtics. And, you know, going back to the Warriors-Celtics before they moved on and the Syracuse Nationals related, re, you know, relocated, I still remember paying 25 bucks to sit in the uh, first level behind the basket for Game 6 of the 1981 at Western uh, Eastern Finals. Sixers led 3-2, got out to a 17-point lead in the second half. Dave Zinkoff, the great uh, PA announcer, is sitting there telling that finals tickets are going on sale after the game. The Sixers jack it up, lose that one, then lose Game 7. I went with a guy that I conned into spending 25 bucks, which he didn't have because he was like 19 at the time. He came out of there. He wasn't mad at the Sixers. He was mad at me for conning him into going to game. When it came to Sixers-Celtics, did the players hate each other more than the fans hated each other? It was pretty close. I mean, you remember Doc and, and, and Dr. J and, and, and Bird fought. Sure. Uh, you had some nastiness going on with uh, Andrew Tony, the Boston Strangler. So you had some you had some, some disdain between those two. And look, everybody hated Rat Auerbach when he would sit there at the end of the game in the Boston Garden and light up that victory cigar. You hated that. Out here in Southern California, Laker fans I think Bill Lambeer might have been the most hated opponent of all time with Danny Ainge a very close second. Where you grew up in Philadelphia, Sixer fans put their hatred towards who the most? Well, Larry Bird. You know, they hated Havlicek in the 60s and 70s because he stole the ball, et cetera. But they really hated Bird because Bird just, you know, he was such a killer. And, and, I, and nowadays I watch him and I just sit there with awe because, first of all, he was he couldn't jump higher than a couple of dollar bills. Second of all, he would sit there and tell you what he was going to do. He'd get the ball. He said, I'm going to jab step left. I'm going to take two dribbles right away and jump shot. He tried to stop him. He couldn't do it. 
They just jogged down the, the, the court looking like some dude in a Thursday night rec league. Let me veer off course here for a second, if I may. We're talking about rivalries here in today's Sports Lodge podcast, but you just brought up Larry Bird. Do you think he often gets lost when people talk about the greatest players of all time? Of course, you hear Jordan, you hear LeBron and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. But what about Larry Bird in that conversation? How great do you think he really was? I really think he was astounding. And I, I don't think anybody leaves him out of their top ten. You could argue where does he finish, you know, second, seventh, whatever. But when you're talking about the top ten players, you have to put Bird in there. And, 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 you know, people over the years have said things about why he's there. The guy was unbelievable. If his back hadn't gone out, he would have played, you know, four or five more years at a very high level. He was just amazing because he could do everything. He passed it well. He, he, he ran the floor slowly, but he knew what to do when he got the ball. He could hit the long shot. He could rebound. And he played enough defense when it mattered. All right, let's get to your book now. Big Games, College Football's Greatest Rivalries. Greatest Rivalries. That's what this podcast is all about today. So let me start here. Why did you want to write a book on the greatest college football rivalries? You know, it's so to me, it's romantic. You know, Ann Arbor, Michigan, Palo Alto, uh, California, uh, you know, Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Forget Rome and Athens and Paris. Those are the places, as I was growing up, that I looked at as some sort of mystical location. So to be able to write about the personalities of Cal Stanford, of USC, Notre Dame, of Michigan, Ohio State, Alabama, Auburn, Army, Navy. Just for fun, I threw in Lafayette, Lehigh, uh, Florida, Georgia, just the rivalries across the country, Oklahoma, Texas. That the, I could talk about what they meant, what their personality was, and then the history of them, and, and so many great players. And I talked to 150 different people for the book. It was tremendous to talk to, you know, uh, hop along Cassidy. I had the last interview with Prentice Goat, who was the first black player to be play, to play at Oklahoma, to talk about Miami and Florida State, these great players, and, and understand what it meant to them to play these rivalries. It was compelling to me, and it's something that I keep going back to as college football's perhaps greatest strength is these rivalries that endure. Give me the interview that you did with the 150 people that you interviewed for your book, Big Games, College Football's Greatest Rivalries. Give me the interview that you wish was still going on. You enjoyed it so much. Arab Parsegian. When I talked to him, he was about 84 years old. He was still complaining about the 1964 game and a referee's <laughs> call, a holding call that he thought was bogus. And he could recall play by play by play the entire game. It was so great to talk to him and to hear him at that age still have the passion and the fire, you know, so many years after. What rivalry that you wrote about was was truly physically the most brutal? Well, it was either Oklahoma, Texas, or Alabama, Auburn, because Texas, Oklahoma, Texas, you go back into the days of the Roughnecks and, you know, Southwest Conference football, which was not exactly uh, a pursuit for the folks that, that drank tea with their pinky sticking out. Alabama, Auburn is just such plain, old-fashioned hate, and they, 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 they both sides really despise each other to the point where, as I said, when the little kid said he liked Auburn, they said, you're sitting in the corner when the Alabama coach comes here. Those games are bru- were brutal and are brutal. 
How important is the venue when it comes to a great rivalry? Give me the place where, oh, always a good rivalry whenever they played inside this stadium. Right, the Horseshoe in Columbus, I, was, I saw a game there. Fans are right on top of you. It goes, you know, goes straight up. And Jacksonville was fun for the Georgia-Florida game. I had Terry Hogue, the former safety from Georgia, tell me he could stand on the 50-yard line and smell the alcohol because the people have been drinking all week, and they were all just potted when they got into the stadium. Uh, you know, the Coliseum, when it's filled, is a great venue, although you're, you're set back from the field because of the track. Uh, and then Legion Field in Birmingham, where you would have pretty much half and half. And then finally, true half and half is the Cotton Bowl because they divide it up. Uh, you know, by section almost, Oklahoma, Texas. Can you give me the interview and who it was with and you could still see the hatred in his eyes when he was talking about his rival? Well, Jim Harbaugh was pretty good. And I remember he told me when his father, Jack, was coaching at Stanford, they, um, they, they said, you know, he was down on this field before the California game and he said to his, you know, the, the announcer said, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the big game. And Jim Harbaugh turned to his dad and goes, we know who the real big game is, Dad. It's being played in Ann Arbor right now between Michigan and Ohio State. <laughs> and when it comes to a great college football rivalry, other than your Michigan-Ohio State, which I know is true to your heart, give me one that you'll, you'll just never forget about it. Well, I'll tell you, when Pitt and Penn State used to play in the 70s, sure, and both teams were great, that was huge. I never miss that one. And then... The one that, that was so great for me, because growing up I loved the Oklahoma Sooners because of the wishbone, was that fr- the Friday after Thanksgiving when Oklahoma and Nebraska played. And you look at that from about 68 to 85 and how many important games and great players and photo finishes and impacts on the national scene that rivalry had. It's sad that we don't see it anymore. That's amazing that you bring up Oklahoma-Nebraska on the Friday after Thanksgiving because I can still remember as a kid Johnny Rogers, Jerry Taggy, uh, Rich Glover. I can still remember those players uh, from that rivalry. So it had a big influence on me. What rivalry and the players and the era had the biggest uh, you know, impact on your young life? It was the, I'll tell you, Roger, and I keep coming back to it, and I'm sorry, but in 1969, it was seven. Ohio State had won something like 30 straight games. They were number one, Bo Schembechler's first year. Michigan beats them 24-12 to in, in Ann Arbor, and they tore the goalposts down. And when you're seven years old and you see that for the first time, you think it's the coolest thing in the whole world. That turned me into a Michigan fan, and uh, not ten years later, I showed up in Ann Arbor to go to school there. Did you have a worst interview during uh, your 150 interviews for your book big games college football's greatest rivalries not really i you know everybody one thing i find out about athletes is when you talk to them after the fact they're a lot easier to speak with they're a lot more willing to talk to you they're a lot more willing to give you information because it's the games are passed anthony davis i couldn't get him off the phone then he sends me autographed Sports Illustrated covers from that game where they beat Notre Dame where he returned second-half kickoff and opened the floodgates. He, he, he was like, whatever you want, here's my home number. Come on, boy. You know, he, he was, I couldn't get him off the phone. Where is that Anthony Davis autographed Sports Illustrated cover now? In my world headquarters office, bottom shelf of the closet, right in the middle underneath a whole bunch of other memorabilia. <laughs> 
Name the college football rivalry actual game, a single game from a rivalry that will stay with you forever. It's that Notre Dame USC game. I'll never forget it. I was, you know, I didn't like the Irish at all. They had beaten the Texas Longhorns in the early '70s, back when you know Hook'em Horns. When you're a little kid, you think that's cool. So then they beat them in the Cotton Bowl in '71. I was, I became a Notre Dame hater right from there. And watching USC come back in the second half and just unbel- just inundate them with points. I won't forget the feeling of, of delight that I felt watching the Irish go down like that. And that day that USC came back from a 24-6 to halftime deficit to roll Notre Dame, I'll never forget it as long as I live for this reason. I watched the game on television. My stepfather and my brother Steve were nowhere to be found during the game. I had no idea where they were. And they came they came walking through the door a little bit later on that evening. And I said, oh, my God, did you guys see the SC Notre Dame game? And they let me know they had gone to the game. My dad only had two tickets, and he took my brother. I'll never forget it. Yeah, and that's rough. And, and I'll never forget the gatefold uh, Sports Illustrated cover with, with Davis running and then in the inset, the two Notre Dame cheerleaders crying. Yes, I think I still have that in my office as well. All right, let's get off college football for a moment here. Individual rivalries, Connors, McEnroe, Palmer, Nicholas, Tiger Woods, Phil Mickelson, Roger Federer, Rafi Nadell. Give me the one-on-one matchup that you truly cherish. I love the Borg McEnroe rivalries from the, the 70s when they played. You had McEnroe full of fire and full of absolute, you know, uh, just vitriol at all times. And Borg was the cool Swede standing back there on the the, uh, ba- uh, the baseline, just pounding forehand winners and, and wearing down his opposition. That was, uh, and his, you know, his Romanian wife, Mariana Simonescu, uh, sitting there looking fabulous in the stands. That was a tremendous individual contract. And how about Connors McEnroe, who played each other 34 times between 77 and 91. McEnroe won 20 of them. What do you remember most about Connors McEnroe? If you could could have bottled the the combined sweat of those two, you could have made something that was powerful enough to, to make a jet plane go past Mach 1. Because those guys... You know, they, they started sweating when they got out of bed in the morning because of the, the fury that with which they attacked tennis and life. So that was what was so great about that. The most hate, hatred of any rivalry is who? I think I, tr- I, 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 I truly think I truly think it's Ravens Steelers. I've experienced many of those games at M&T Bank Stadium in Baltimore. The the two fan bases hate each other. I got to go Steelers Ravens. Who do you go with? Alabama Auburn's pretty nasty too, Roger. You know, you you can't be an Alabama fan, you know, an Auburn country. And if you're up in the, up in the northern part of the state and you you're flying that Auburn flag, they're coming at you. Another one that's really underrated is Michigan, Michigan State, and that's gotten a lot worse now. I mean, I got fans, friends who hate the Buckeyes, but they live with the same block with Michigan State fans. And and now that Michigan State is is kind of shedding that little brother status that Mike Hart, you know, you know, gave them, that's that's a pretty big hatred. Um, you know, Pitt, West Virginia, they cannot stand each other. They really can. And I mentioned Cincinnati Xavier also. There's a lot of hate. But I'll go Alabama-Auburn any day. Man, those are some really good, some underrated rivalries you're giving me here today. Hey, give me the rivalry that you were in somehow, some way, 
the closest to, the closest you've ever been to one of these rivalries? Well, it's the Villanova-St. Joe's. It's called the Holy War. I've written about it. I've been to a bunch of different games. I know people from both sides. I now have a, I've taught at both schools. I have a degree from Villanova. Uh, I have, as I said, friends on both sides. I know people from Villanova who are married to people from St. Joe's. Uh, it's changed because Villanova's ascended in the national status, but it's still they're still pretty hated. The best line I ever heard from it was a woman who went to St. Joe's. She says, I hate Villanova people. They think their beer tastes better, and they have more fun at the Jersey Shore. Before you leave me, you got to give me a wrestling rivalry. One of your all-time favorites from the squared circle. Who you going with and why? I, I'm, I'm going to go with Hulk Hogan and King Kong Bundy. I was a Bundamaniac. Uh, I, I went and saw them and, and was rooting for King Kong Bundy. He went a great heel with the old single strap, uh, you know, black singlet uh, against the you know, Hulk, Hulk Hogan, Nature Vegetables, little kids, and you know, little Hulkamaniacs. So I, I think that was a great one. I know you mentioned uh, you know, the, the macho man. Uh, I think the Hulk against Rowdy Roddy Piper was another good one because Rowdy Roddy could stir the pot so well wearing that stupid kilt. Who was the best wrestling villain you ever saw in person? Uh, I, I haven't seen enough in person, Roger, but I'll tell you, the Iron Sheik and Nikolai Volkov yes. coming out and singing the Soviet national anthem before during the height of the Cold War. What a what a, an inspired combination and a great show that they were able to put on. I got to tell you, when I watched the Iron Sheik at the old sports arena during the Cold War taking on Hulk Hogan for the WWF belt, and he came in the ring waving that flag oh. and singing their national anthem. I have never seen 20,000 people as fired up with hatred as they had for the Iron Sheik and his manager, Freddie Blassie, that night. Classy, classy Freddie Blassie. And you're right. Vince McMahon knows his business. That's all I'll say, Roger. Someday when you leave God's green earth, you can take a video of a college football rivalry game, what game are you taking with you? Oh, wow. Um, I'm going to take the 69 Michigan-Ohio State game. That just started the whole 10-year war between Bo and Woody, and you got two teams that were always in the top five playing each other. That one really, really began it. He writes for Athlon Sports, Street and Smith Magazine, his book, Big Games, College Football's Greatest Rivalries. It's available everywhere you would expect it to be. And he was the perfect guest for today's Sports Lodge podcast on great rivalries in sports. Michael Bradley, even though you're calling from the road for a podcast, I can't thank you enough for your time. You know, it's always my pleasure, Roger. And uh, one more time before you leave me, where are you heading right now? The, the in a guy it's the Iron Butterfly tribute band. They're playing a two-hour in a guy to Davida. In the Godelita, baby, go oh, enjoy that. Don't you know that I love you? Okay, I'll talk to you later. <laughs> there he goes. Michael Bradley, and what a thrill it was to have him today for the Sports Lodge podcast all about the biggest rivalries in sports. The Sports Lodge with Roger Lodge was brought to you by the Global Story Network.